Hi, this is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. This is kind of a special episode. Usually I turn up in the space where my guest normally cooks their home, their business, and they're comfortable in their own space. But this time, well, maybe my wonderful guest, the food writer and chef, Kate Young, can tell you where we were. We are in the basement beneath Tottenham Court Road Waterstones. I mean, we're not beneath it. We're also we're on the ground basement floor. It's still part of It's definitely part of Waterstones. I've made it sound like we're in a bunker, which we are not. So that might explain why this recording is slightly noisier than I like them to be. Professional kitchens are loud. All those fridges, freezers, industrial ovens, ventilation systems, particularly when the kitchen is underground, as this one is. And as you might know, if you've listened before, I like guests to explain the processes of what they're doing in the kitchen while I'm talking to them. And again, this is slightly different to usual. Currently, very specifically, I am rolling quenelles. I mean, they're rubbish quenelles. Um, quenelles of brown bread and brown butter ice cream with a swizzle spoon. I should explain at this point that Kate was using a swizzle spoon, the technical name obviously, because the normal spoons were being delivered from another branch of Waterstones and hadn't arrived yet. And also I should mention that it wasn't just one or two canal, it was about 60. So I'm going to let Kate explain this madness. So this ice cream is made of a Virginia Woolf Supper Club, which is happening in 52 minutes. And uh, we are we are cooking the women's meal from a room of one's own, which in the book is not at all fancy, not at all posh, not at all really nice, and is kind of derided uh, and by the writer, but it is, we're making it nice. We're making it something that's worthy of, worthy of women. She does kind of derive it in the book. But oh it, my God, massively. It is a great It's meal. a nice menu. Yeah. Like, so do you want to just take me through each course? So in you? the book, it is a great, like a gravy-like soup. And it's this gorgeous line about so watery that you could see this, the pattern of the soup bowl through it. But the bowl had no pattern. Like the bowl's also rubbish and Such has no pattern. <laughs> Such a diss. And so it is, I've made it into a vegetable consomme. So uh, it's an onion one that's behind you. And then we do it with, I, in spring, I try and do it with asparagus, but it's not spring. So we're doing it with courgette, mini, like tiniest courgettes I've ever seen and herbs and spring onions and some sugar snap peas. So it's nice and fresh and bright and lovely. And then the beef, greens and potatoes, which she's very much like, oh, it's like a meal you'd buy in a market. It's really rubbish. Is actually gorgeous because beef and greens, potatoes is a gorgeous thing. And you should see this. So there's a beautiful well. three, three and a half kilo rump of beef sitting in the oven at 240, getting golden and beautiful on the fat. And then we'll turn it down and roast it for a bit longer. And we'll have lovely rare roast beef with little baby potatoes that are boiling away behind you and that are going to be roasted once the beef comes out. Sorry, I keep turning around to put the canals in the freezer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should explain that, yeah, Kate, Kate just keeps going off mic because uh, she's in the freezer. I'm in the freezer. Oh, and the greens become herb salad, which is my favorite thing. And then the dessert is prunes and custard. There's also, and I, I don't talk about this in, in the book very much, but there's also bread and butter to start. So I put the bread and butter in the custard instead. So we've got brown bread and brown butter ice cream and prunes in Armagnac. And so maybe you could explain a little bit more of why, why are you cooking a milk from Virginia Woolf? So I have written a book. Um, I'm going to tell you when I turn around in a second. <laughs> I have written a book <laughs> about uh, food in literature. So it is recreating 
sort of my favourite meals from my favourite books. It's all stuff um, that, oh, could you do me a favour? Yeah. Could you turn the potatoes off? Yes. Off. Off, yeah. Just straight off. Thank you. So it is, it's not necessarily sort of fantasy food. It's all food that I hope you'd cook in your kitchen anyway, but it's just a particularly nice version of it. There's crumpets from Rebecca and there's meatballs and spaghetti from The Godfather and there's treacle tart from Harry Potter and there's marshmallows from Tomorrow When the War Began. It's just all the books I grew up reading and lots I read in adulthood and dishes from them. It is just such an amazing idea. Thank you. It is. How did this come about? What was it that gave you the idea to start? Because obviously food is a very big part of literature. And the sound is all good, we like it. Um, Just wrapping some foil around the plate. Wrapping foil around a plate. Was there a particular recipe that was a trigger and you were like, I need to cook this and other people need to actually cook this recipe because I feel like it will give a deeper insight into the book. Like, what was it? The first one was the treacle tart from Harry Potter because it was something I'd always wanted to try as a child growing up in Australia, but never had because it's not ah. it's not in Australia. So I knew it was Harry Potter's favourite dessert and I knew it was something I wanted to eat, but had never had. And so I made it and told some friends why I'd made it and they went, that's a thing, you should, you should write about that. And I posted a recipe for it a week later, maybe two weeks later, and I then posted a recipe a week for the next two years yeah so it started and it sort of became my like creative sideline that I'd spend my time on the weekends doing and about a year and a half after I started it I left my job to write the book I think there are some books and I think Harry Potter is a really good example where it's just it leaps off the page the food yeah yeah sorry, yeah the food just leaps off the page yeah and it's it it's such like it creates this atmosphere are there any books where there's been a food scene where you thought actually i don't want to make that like i can't do anything with that like it's just it's it's almost like it creates too horrible a feeling that i can't i kind of embrace the like so the one in the book that's really awful in in the novel and then i do it anyway is the um crab and avocado in in the bell jar which, and I love that. I love that. And it's, it's something I've thought about while eating crab for most of the rest of my life. Like I, I first read it, I think when I was 14 or 15. And then it's something that goes into my head every time I eat crab. I'm like, I'm going to get food poisoning. Definitely. Chocolate it's going to happen. So many. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's that moment of like, well, at least it hasn't been under really bright lights all day being photographed. Like it's going to be fine. But yeah, I wanted to make a really great version of that. Like, this is first and foremost, I hope, a cookbook. It's lovely that this is where the inspiration from is from, but I want it first and foremost to be a cookbook. And so when the ingredients would have been rationed and margarine instead of butter or any of those sort of things, and things that maybe don't sound quite so appetising, particularly from that era, I've made them appetising. I've, I've made them the way I would want to eat them now rather than the way that they historically might have eaten them in that book. I've done research and I've I've worked really hard to make sure that the recipes are either have some root in history. So if they're a historic recipe, if it's for example from a Victorian novel, I'm looking at how that would have been cooked, but it needs to work in 2017 in your oven. So it's not going to be an authentic Victorian recipe because we don't have the same sort of ovens. I think as well, um, because it's a recipe that comes from a book and you have that, reading that description 
food has already it's already working with your memories and your knowledge yes and your perception of what that food would taste like yes so you can only go on your own experience absolutely and i think that's what's really nice you're kind of bringing that to life i mean other people might have a different interpretation oh i'm absolutely ready for other people to have a different interpretation of it i think that's the loveliest thing about yeah. it it's like lots of these things are dishes that are dishes that people might have thought about for years or like read that book as a child and went oh I wonder what that is like or read you know the butterfly lion and the scones dripping in butter and going okay I know what that is because my grandma used to make scones and that's how these scones tasted and like that's how I've always imagined those scones we add so much to literature that's what I love about books and reading books we add so much to character and time and place and situations because of our own experience and where we are when we're reading that bit so I think it's a really interesting thing to do regardless like an interesting thing to do for so many reasons and regardless of your own connection with the book it's always going to be interesting and it's always going to be interesting for different people to interpret in different ways are there any recipes that were really hard to make work well I mean I guess like maybe the research heavy ones I think the roasting the goose definitely because my family were not a family who ate goose growing up, so it was it was the first like playing around with that recipe was the first time I had started really cooking with goose and doing that because it's supposed to be so in a Christmas Carol, the goose is like the poor man's version, so Bob Cratchit's version for his family before Scrooge comes along and goes here, happy Christmas, here's a turkey. Now, I don't really like turkey. I'm a pretty big fan of goose, so. It was a really interesting thing going like, why is that the meat that has suddenly become the one that we would go, that's the that's the posh meat, that's the meat that like the rich people are buying. And considering all the Victorian sides and accompaniments along that, once you've got goose fat in the mix, which you do have as soon as you're making a goose, because there's so much fat that comes out of a goose, it's such a winner. That, that meal is so extravagant and so glorious that I'm kind of like, the Cratchits were better yeah. off like <laughs> before he came in with the stupid turkey yeah that's really interesting and yeah that's, I guess that's another but that's just sort of examples of kind of perceptions of things and like our own yeah the the era that a food lives in yes and how different it is exactly and, like, and I think that's another really interesting thing about food in literature because it is just so you know like you say like there are these things that we take for granted yeah but were rarities. I mean, I remember my parents saying that they they would have chicken once a year. Yeah, know, totally. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. You know, it was like turkey. It was such a rare yeah. thing. Are there any ingredients that you've really struggled to get with recipes like that? I live in London, which makes me very lucky um, in terms of ingredients. There's not much you can't get. No, uh, goose in July was tricky uh, because nobody <laughs> nobody wants to sell you a goose in yeah. July um, because nobody eats goose in July. Yeah. So that was quite tricky. Goose is really heavy. You don't want to eat it in July. We roasted it and we were boiling puddings and it was like the shoot of the book was extraordinary. But it's also like six days I will never forget for so many reasons and most of which because it was absolutely insane what we were doing on the hottest in this hottest period of the year. Yeah. I mean it looks beautiful, but that was quite tricky to get. And so what's your background in cooking? Are you are you a cook by trade or is this something that's purely kind of come out of a love for I mean you're obviously you've obviously always always been interested in food because of this perspective you have on books. So I'm not trained. I'm very much a home cook, which I think kind of works for the book because I want it to be for home cooks, so I don't want it to be for chefs. There are some quite faffy not faffy, that's 
probably should probably kill me. Um, some like quite tricky recipes in the book that took me a while to develop and lots of research. And one of them is the soup that's behind you that takes ages, but is beautiful. I grew up cooking a lot. My family cook an enormous amount. We sort of spend most of our time either eating or planning what we're next going to eat or talking about what we're eating in about four weeks time when we do this event that everyone's coming to. So it was very much how I grew up. And in a really, in, in a really lovely, enjoyable way, I learned to cook. Not because there was pressure on it, but just because we all loved cooking and then I happily did too. And so I moved away from home, which is Australia, when I was 21 and moved over here. And that was the first time I'd lived away from my family and also the first time that I'd had to I'd had to cook on my own and I lived in a tiny flat in Whitechapel with two boys who I'd gone to university with who were both brilliant and we just spent loads of time in this ridiculously small kitchen with a like glow-in-the-dark blue window frame and like carpeted everywhere we spent loads of time cooking and I realized that I didn't just love it because my mum was there and she was good at it but I loved it because I could do it and then I lived in in Hackney for five years and did lots more cooking and then didn't really start doing it semi-professionally in terms of like charging people to eat my food until I'd started writing the blog so sort of mid 2014 okay. was the first thing that I did. Can you remember what you cooked for the first thing well, the first thing I started doing was supplying my cakes to the Tricycle Theatre, which is where I was working as a producer. They sort of started paying me to, to make cakes. And I would stock the cafe on a Sunday um, and then come into work on a Monday and be a producer. <laughs> that was my first thing. And then I did my first supper club about sort of 10 months about after starting that. And that was a great start. That was a really good, like, full-on learning curve because it's that, like, how do you budget? How do you how do you consider ingredients? How do you like getting my you know health and safety certificates? And how do you cater? And how do you cater for that many people? And how is that different from having a dinner party for six, which is what most of my experience before then had been? And then in the middle of that year, I catered a wedding for two hundred and fifty, and that was like <laughs> baptism by fire. It was amazing. It's yeah, it's an extraordinary memory. And so from that point forward, then started doing more and more stuff. And is there anything you cook, whether it's, you know, from a book or not, that reminds you of home? Oh my God, so much. Like, so, so much. There's loads of recipes in the book that are really directly and really blatantly. This is my mum's, this is my dad's, this is this thing that we grew up eating. The Christmas pudding in the book is my great-grandmother's recipe for Christmas pudding. So, you know, it's one that there's literally no reason to have a Christmas pudding in Australia in December because it's like 4,000 degrees and you're eating hot pudding and hot custard. But it is delicious and it's one of my favourite things. And if I, yeah, if I was stuck on a desert island with only one dessert, it would probably be my great-grandma's Christmas pudding. Yeah, I, that, that recipe is very much about my family. But loads of them are. Like the way that I boil eggs or scramble eggs is because of my family. You know, sure. all of those things that you learn, those little those little cooking tasks you learn them from well I learned them certainly from watching my parents I'm really lucky that I grew up in a house where cooking is what we did and so I learned them watching watching mum and dad yeah it's so tied up so yeah no, no one linking them yeah exactly are there any um 
sort of Australian authors that we might not be so familiar with? Yeah, so my favourite Australian book in the book. Oh, that's really unfair. There's a few really good ones, but I think the the one that people will go, oh my gosh, that sounds so sweet and lovely and I have to read that book, is called Possum Magic. And it's about a possum called Hush who turns invisible. Her grandma Poss turns her invisible for her birthday and then she decides she doesn't really want to be invisible anymore and Grandma Poss like, mate, pff, you didn't say you wanted to go back. I don't know how to turn you back. <laughs> and, um, and she says, I think it's something to do with food. And so they essentially travel around Australia together just eating all the Australian food. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Until she is visible again. And so in the book is lamingtons, pumpkin scones and Anzac biscuits, which are three of the things that they go and eat. And lamingtons is what eventually causes her to become visible again. What is a lamington? Uh, it's like one. a dense sponge cake, like made with yogurt. Like it's quite, okay. or milk, you know, you could use milk. But yeah, it's it's kind of a dense sponge cake, rolled in chocolate icing, rolled in coconut. It's so good. <laughs> and I think it was one of those things that like started life as an accident where a cook dropped sponge cake into chocolate and the guy like Lord Lamington or something said oh this is rather good sure yeah sure. <laughs> such a great name yeah. I love it I know it's great isn't it why do you think food in literature is important like what what can it tell us oh gosh um so much like I think that that food in our lives and food in literature tell us so much about people about families about um communities about countries about a time and a place and a sense of a class and a um like a focus in a family like whether there's a lot of time spent on food or whether it's very much like quick things when you get home from work so you know you you learn so much about people from what they eat and and what they enjoy and I'm not saying it's the most important thing about a book I'm not you know I know that there are lots you know there's plotting there's other things but I think it tells you so much about all of those things that I I would question any book that doesn't consider what its characters are eating and doing. Mm. I think authors try and tell us quite a lot when they talk about the food that the characters are eating. And sometimes, like particularly books that were written during rationing, which is sort of one of my favourite eras of children's literature is during that time, it's all wish fulfilment. It's all like amazing sounding food because all the kids were eating like frozen carrots on sticks. Have you got any examples? Um, yeah. Lots of the Famous Five stuff is all like oh my God, that sort of, of era of I never even yeah. Heard of that. So it's like all of these picnics with amazing sounding food and oh my God, I've never even considered yeah. That. So it's like great pies and great you know great fresh things that they pull out of their pockets that they've been carrying for miles and great you know spreads that they you know quite yeah. extravagant amounts of food and none of it's very fancy and lots of it's tinned. Mm. You know, it's yes. lots of tin sardines and all of that sort of stuff, but it's Pilchards. exactly, but it is, it's that sort of era of, that's what was happening with the adults in those books yeah, at that time. Of course, that yeah. makes so much sense now I think of it. Yeah. I was thinking about the books that I've read kind of over my life and which ones, with the food of which has, what stayed with me the most. Yeah. And a lot of them are things that you've written about because I think they are, you know, real key things. So Enid Blyton is just massively, this, as well as, um, as well as the famous five, Mallory Towers. Oh my god, one. yeah. Yeah. Um, All the school ones. I love yeah. a Midnight Feast. Midnight Feast? Yeah. Oh my god, I was obsessed with Midnight mm -hmm. Feast. And another one was the Bell Jar one because it's just this there's something so I think there's these moments throughout the book where there's these really like striking, like it's some kind of striking, horrible moments. I remember being able to picture it so clearly in like each place sitting with a little mirror 
that is then, a moment of proper horror. Yeah, it really is because then it's this horrible yeah, like, yeah. disintegration of. Oh my everything. god! Absolutely. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. And another one for me is 1984. There's a lot of, when you ask before about meals that I've like read about and don't really want to make, a lot of it's the dystopian stuff. Yeah. I love 1984. I wish yeah. that it was in the book, really, because I'd love to talk about it. Yeah. But it's awful. It's I don't want to talk about that yeah. food. That's not, that's not food I want somebody cooking at home. And also, you can't make that food nice. Then it's not really that food at all. Like, yeah, you're exactly. It beyond recognition, like the stew that they eat, that's these weird, like pink mystery lumps. Like, yeah. You can't, you can't make that some nice thing. No. Or like slow cooked lamb. Like well, it's not going to work. And even like even books that people think uh, must be full of good food. Mm. So Lord of the Rings is one where people go like, oh, the hobbits, I bet they have amazing food. And, like, the start of the hobbit with that party is amazing. Yeah. Like, everyone's showing up and him being, like, bustling off to the cellar to get, you know, four more seed cakes or whatever it is. That's that's gorgeous. But Lord of the Rings, after they leave the Shire, there's a moment when they have bacon and mushrooms. But after that, they basically survive on that horrible-sounding elvish bread that like fills you up for days and that's yeah right that's part of those books as well loads of those like quest adventure books are full of awful food and that that really dictates how the characters are feeling it's very much how like the seventh harry potter book it's basically all about how they can't get good food and ron becomes an awful person (laughs) because he's used to good food and suddenly doesn't have any that would absolutely be me. Me too. Oh my god, I would be an absolute nightmare on that journey. That said, I mean, I d- this isn't the time for this, but like, they're magic. I don't understand why Hermione's not just like, there's a Tesco yeah. down here, let's just pop in under the invisibility cloak. I mean, there's a lot of holes in all of that, isn't there, really? <laughs> there's, I think there's a moment, <laughs> I think there's a moment when they explain why that's not possible, but I was like, I don't buy it. No, I don't. Go to a supermarket, come on. There's an excuse, it's a caveat. Stop eating weird <laughs> mushrooms that you picked, just you Accio, might all die. Just Accio some, you know, some instant right? noodles. Like, yeah. how hard can it be? Exactly. I don't know what made me think of this, but um, is it in Little Women where they have the maple ca- syrup candy? No, that's little. Yeah, I think no. it's Big House Little in Little Woods. I guess the first one. because yeah. I, I just remember like having never. Oh my god, pouring maple, maple like boiling maple syrup onto the snow to make maple candy. Like, oh my god, yes, please. Like incredible. I, and having I read that having never tasted maple syrup. Yeah. But I was just like, oh my god, I want that. Oh like, my god, it's so extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what. It, 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 it's so powerful that it creates a picture, even if you don't have any experience to draw on, that you even know what it tastes like. Yeah. You can kind of imagine. Exactly. And is there anything, I mean, just to kind of close it off, what's your kind of favourite food scene in a contemporary novel? Maybe maybe it doesn't even have to be in the book. What have you read recently and you were like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. So I've been reading The Cazalet Chronicles this summer, which is not really contemporary. It's 90s, set in the 40s, but you know, I'm gonna call it, it's my contemporary fiction because I was reading it last month. Yeah, exactly. All the food in that is amazing. And it is during, like, I guess I'm only up to like 1941. So rationing was happening, but not not as much as it was a couple of years later. But it's always a big consideration in those books where characters sit down around a table and have conversations. It's very much that style of book. And so, it it's beautiful and yeah. I want to eat all of that food I want to sit around the table with that family and eat roast chicken and plum tart and greens and potatoes and have a really lovely Sunday I think they're amazing I think the characters are extraordinary and yeah I've been 
loving them. So there's there's five of these books. Have you read them? No, I haven't. No, they're amazing. So there's five of these books, and I read the first one last summer and loved it so much that I've rationed them. So I'm only allowed to read one a year. Oh my god. Yeah. So in four years' time, I'm going to be finished. God, you could do a whole book about this. These series. I of books. love it. I would. I would write a whole book about that series of books. They're amazing. Thanks so much to the brilliant Kate Young for letting me be a part of her supper club. And if you do ever get the opportunity to eat food she's cooked, then do it without hesitation because it was amazing. It was a real pleasure to do this episode. As someone who's quite clearly so obsessed with food that I started a podcast about it, I unsurprisingly read a lot of food writing. And I really think that good food writing should change your life a little bit in the sense that it changes how you view what you eat and how you think about that. And Kate's writing has absolutely done that for me and I now have her in mind when I read a lot and it's changed how I view food in the context of fiction and how important it is because I completely agree that it can tell you so much about everything. So go out and get her book. Uh, It's called The Little Library Cookbook and it's published by the brilliant Head of Zeus and it's available in all the usual places and it is beautiful. I highly, highly recommend it. A big thanks also has to go to the force of nature that is my friend Rosie Beaumont-Thomas, who, among many things, books the events at Waterstones Tottenham Court Road, where the supper club took place. Rosie's taste is impeccable and her events are brilliant, so go to them. Thanks, as ever, to Lekka's resident illustrator, Ben MacDonald, who, yet again, has absolutely knocked it out of the park for this episode. You can see the drawings that he's done on our Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, at Lekka Podcast. And they're also included in the new tiny letter I'm sending out as a companion to each episode. So please do subscribe to that if you haven't already, tinyletter.com forward slash Lekka. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, and do rate and review if you enjoy Lekka. It really helps. Thank you. And thank you so much to you for listening.